Welcome to What is Black, a podcast centering the stories of Black people and culture to help raise affirmed, empowered, healthy, and thriving Black children and teens. Welcome everyone to another episode of What is Black podcast. I'm so excited to have author um, Bethany Morrow with us this morning to talk about her new book, um, So Many Beginnings. So Bethany, if you can um, let our audience know a little bit about yourself, please. Yes, I am Bethany C. Morrow. I am the author most recently of So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix. Um, previously, and actually I had another release just this summer. It was the second in my Song of the Water uh, duology. So the first one is A Song of the Water came out in 2020. And the follow-up, A Chorus Rises, came out this past June. Um, I am now a national bestseller thanks to that duology. I'm also the editor of a young adult anthology uh, called Take the Mic, Everyday Stories, Fictional Stories of Everyday Resistance, which went on to be the ILA um, Social Justice and Literature Award winner for 2020. And my first novel was an adult, uh, adult novel called Mem. And it came out in 2018. It was an Indies Introduce and an Indie Next Pick with the ALA. I love, I love you just have all those things ready to go because I think it, because I think what's wonderful, right. Is that I think for as black women or just women in general, right. I don't think we do enough to, to call out the work that we've done. Right. So thank you. I think, thank you for sharing all that. So, you know, I know today we're, we're talking about um, so many beginnings. And before we get started, I wanted to get from your perspective, um, a brief overview of the book. So, so many beginnings, um, as I, as we call it, is a Little Women remix, and that means that it is not a retelling. It is not simply retelling the uh, Alcott story of of the March sisters by making them black, um, because of course, race being a social construct, being something that's intentionally constructed it has an impact on your everyday life as it was intended to. And so it would be impossible to retell a story of genteel poverty in 1863 with the Civil War simply as a backdrop. It's not possible to do that um, with a a Black family. And I didn't make any attempt to do that. So um, this story follows the March sisters and March family as they have recently relocated after self-emancipating. Um, they've relocated to a free people colony on Roanoke Island, which is a an actual place um, that did exist. And it's basically them beginning beginning their freedom while the war is still ongoing um, and also being in the shadow of the Union on Roanoke Island uh, being uh, under the patronizing watch of and the infantilizing watch of the um, white missionary teachers who came from up north um, to supposedly educate them, despite the fact that they already had black teachers uh, there. And um, it's really, uh, you know, about the girls coming of age and coming into their individual identities um, at this at this really honestly horrific um, period and in this transition, this national transition that that they hope, of course, will will be a new beginning, not just for them, but for the United States. Oh, yeah. I think that's amazing. I love this idea of a remix instead of a retelling, because it took Mm -hmm. me me a minute to really understand and sit with that, a remix, right? And, you know, listening to other interviews you had, you've had about the book, 
and just digesting the book and re even reading your ending, you know, it all made sense, right? It's like, okay, it's true. It's like, what would black people have been doing in 1800? They probably would have been serving, <laughs> you know, those, the other stories, right? The other, the other, the other retelling, the other story of um, the four sisters. I don't even remember. I mean, I've read the book, but I don't remember those sisters' names. Now I have the march in my head, right? <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the beauty of um, of storytelling, right? I mean, you can have you can have similar settings, right? You can have similar in terms of um, family construct, right? Daughters, um, but again, each of the perspectives is different, right? You can you can kind of, like you said, remix it, just shake it up, and it's like it's a diff whole new different story. It's a completely different story. And um, I, I have been on a panel with an author named Gwenda Bond who writes Lois Lane uh, stories. And she said something really interesting uh, kind of at the beginning of my process um, with so many beginnings. She was talking about the fact that there are actually very few elements of the original property that have to be present for the reader to understand and appreciate that, that, that there is any connection. And as we find, they don't have to be very many. And that's part of the overrepresentation of the canon. That's part of the overrepresentation of things that we consider classics is that even those of us who have never actually read those books or have never, in my case, have never actually read The Little Women, I've seen film adaptations, um, but they are so heavily uh, represented in our culture, in the American imagination, that there are there are things that we attribute that are not that you know they did, that didn't originate in Little Women, but we have been so indoctrinated with Little Women that there are elements that people automatically associate with Little Women. So four sisters, immediately you, you the first thing that comes to mind is going to be Little Women, um, and then a boy named Lori, and that's really the extent of what I of what I really had to have present that I had to have present for people to know that it was Little Women. And the only universal aspect of that story was the familial love and the four individual, very individual sisters. Um, I do think that one of the characters was 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 quite lacking and kind of only served the other the other sister stories in the original. Um, and so my Beth story is is different and she is a, you know, for me, she's a much more complicated and complex character. Um, but there was very little of the original that needed to be present for people to understand and appreciate that there is any correlation um, with with the original Little Women to begin with. And of course, I, I knew that I was going to set it at the same time period and I knew that I was going to make it a truer version of the story, a true representation of 1863 in the United States. Which I think is, which I think is important. Now, do you consider, do you consider this book in the genre of historical fiction? Absolutely. It is 100% historical fiction. Um, it's another reason why it's a remix and not a retelling. There would be no way to do a retelling uh, without keeping it in that fantastical sort of bubble um, that Alcott created. Um, no, this this story begins with Patricia C. Click's nonfiction uh, book called Time Full of Trial, which is all of her scholarship having to do with the Roanoke Island Free People's Colony. Um, and from there, of course, I went into geological papers and just um, to get a sense of exactly what it would have felt like and been like. What are you eating? What's native to this island or to the surrounding uh, mainland? Um, it's absolutely historical fiction. It is the historicity is 
the driving force of all of the character stories. Which I think hopefully would be like a great teaching point, right? And that, you know, again, for me, it was like, it was really, because when I heard Roanoke, I was thinking Virginia. I don't even, mm-hmm. I don't even know if Roanoke, is, I think it's in Virginia. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I, yes. have a, I have a couple of degrees, but geography is not one of them. Um, <laughs> so, and then not even knowing that these free colonies existed. Mm. I, I, yeah, I didn't know about that. I knew and, and I didn't know how I knew. So I've talked about this before, but the sort of the oral curriculum that can be passed down through Black families, uh, because it is 100% not something that I was ever taught, um, that I ever got through formal education. And I've had what I think we could consider a good education in that I went primarily to private schools and then um, and then to uh, very specialized programs um, and then to a University of California for my undergraduate degree. And of course, what I was taught was the curated mythology of America um, because we're not actually taught history. And anytime something is as incomplete um, as as that discipline, it's laughable to to even call it history. And, and what's even funnier is that the American imagination is so wrapped up in this mythology and this curation that people think they have an authority to know what is historical fiction when what is normally presented as historical fiction is extremely fantastical. Um, So it's interesting because you introduce, it it functions very much, real historical fiction functions very much like fantasy um, in terms of world building and everything, how much work you have to do with the reader um, to establish this as reality is it works very similarly to my speculative work because the reader is so unaccustomed to actual history. Um, I knew that for the majority of people, they were not going to have any idea that Roanoke uh, Free People Colony ever existed. Um, And I want, you know, I want that to, I want to breed a healthy skepticism in every reader, whether they're a young adult or not, because you think you've been taught history. How, how do you not know this? And more than that, the intentionality of what you're taught, why do you not know this? Why are there plantation sites that have been maintained for hundreds of years that you can go and visit right now today. And there are no such preserved free people colonies. When you understand that things are intentional, then you can, then you can sit with and you can interrogate what changes about the American narrative. If we celebrate and demonstrate and even just tell people that free people colonies were a thing immediately and that they were, and that many of them were profitable, and that all of them were home to people who had just been forcibly enslaved for hundreds of years. Um, I, I want that. I don't want it to just be like, oh, here's a cool new thing you didn't know. Why didn't you know this? What is the purpose of you not knowing this? What is the purpose of this curated mythology? What does it continue to perpetuate? Um, And so there's a, and I can do all of that simply by showing it because so much work and so much resistance is, is uh, directed toward the excavation of reality and history that it should be telling all on its own. The, you know, the, the resistance that we get to telling the truth, the, on a, on a national level right now, the resistance to teaching the truth that should be telling in and of itself. And if it's not, okay, here are some more details about this time period. How does this change 
the uh, American imagination, the American stereotype and, and dehumanization of Black Americans if a you you know that they were enslaved and are not by definition slaves, and b that they created immediately these free people colonies, and that someone had to intercept this progress. Somebody had to intentionally stop this progress. How does that change your thinking about uh, the propaganda that you've ingested? Oh man, I'm just taking that all in. That's, I mean, that's that's very true. I mean, I might just read it, you know read something on Twitter this morning. It's a story. So it's not just, you know, just like, like a tweet, but um, how there's, um, and, and I have to further read of it, but I think this, again, this concern about, you know, concern about banning books, right. Or removing certain books mm-hmm. and, and what that says, right. Or like, you know, legislation that says that, you know, you can't teach anything that's going to make people feel, some kind of way feel feel like they're racist or make them feel less than. And again, it's that rethinking of okay, what story do you want to tell, right? Does is it all like roses and? <laughs> but they're thorns with roses. I don't know. Well, and as it has it ever has that ever has that same sentiment ever been applied to anybody else? Have we ever not taught something because of how it would impact the feelings of a student who's not white? Have we ever said, I'm not going to teach Huck Finn because how is that going to make my black students feel? Have we ever done that? Has anybody ever said, I'm not going to teach, I'm not going to only teach enslavement because what might that make a black student in 2021 feel if the only historical reference to their people group is, is going to be enslavement and let's say three people who we, who we agree have accomplished something? What is that? tacitly going to tell them. Has that has that approach ever been taken with anything but white supremacy? So again, it tells on itself because if you were concerned with everybody's feelings, if everybody's if, if history was beholden to everybody's feelings, if story was beholden to everybody's feelings, but it isn't. History has always been beholden to the feelings of white Americans. That's how you know this is white supremacy because your feelings are actually important enough to be coddled to the point of lying, burying, uh, completely denouncing, er eradicating, like my entire history, my my right to a history, my right to a genealogy, to understand uh, the divorce that was intentionally done. My right to that knowledge comes secondary to your feelings. Your feelings have a right to stop that process. We'll pause for a brief moment for a message from our sponsor. Education matters. As parents, we often look for new resources to teach about Black people, Black culture, and Black contributions to American and world history. Reconstruction is that resource for parents. Reconstruction provides identity-affirming education for Black students by providing a world-class curriculum that is affordable, high-quality, and taught in small online classes. Created by a dream team of experts, they empower students in our community. They teach more than reading and math. They inspire kids and help them reimagine their possibilities. To learn more and sign up for a class, go to reconstruction.us. For 10% off any fall class, use promo code WHATISBLACK, W-H-A-T-I-S-B-L-A-C-K.
I've been thinking a little bit about this in terms of initially one of the questions was like like how did the characters help make you feel like a better person and or writer and I was thinking about as you were as you were talking how is the how did you find this writing process liberating in some way given the power that you had to remix right and share share historical facts that most people don't know about I mean I feel the gravity of my work in every work in all of my work um I don't feel any particular uh, reverence for classics um so I didn't feel the what I felt was if you if you pay attention to what black creatives have been doing for the last couple of years, excavating American history, true American history and Trojan horsing it into the national imagination by way of beloved properties. So I'm thinking the first episode of HBO's Watchmen with the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. I'm thinking the first episode even of Lovecraft Country, where suddenly people are, oh my gosh, are there such things as sundown towns? And while I don't at all buy that um, that attempt at, at, at ignorance or that attempt at portraying ignorance, I don't at all buy that. Um, I think that it's a very important work that Black Americans have always done, which is we understand, especially as a people whose work and whose creativity and whose talents have been appropriated relentlessly, just like from day one, um, literally even down to just like hymns and spirituals sung in a field. Um, we, as people who are constantly being appropriated from, we understand the power and the influence of culture and entertainment and literature and any anything that makes up anything that falls into that. And so we've seen Black American creators specifically routinely use entertainment to bust open something that logically you would think, well, that, well, that's going to come in through education or that's going to come in through this this uh, formal instruction. And, and it never does because somebody's in control of, of, of what of what you learn there. And the way to do it is to come through entertainment and immediately bring it directly to the consumer, directly to the person, because no one can stop that getting into the American imagination at that point. Um, and there's got to be an answer for it. And even if it's a, I don't want to deal with that. Well, now you've had to say, I don't want to deal with it. Now you've had, now you're having to do something that is going to, again, showcase exactly what your motives are um, in your resistance to this. So I have always understood the gravity of that work. It's why um, traditional publishing matters to me because it certainly doesn't legitimize me as a, as a writer. Uh, there are plenty of writers and authors who are not traditionally published, uh, but the impact that I want to see, the sociological disruption that I want to see is possible through traditional publishing, through getting directly into entertainment. Um, and so I felt the way that I always feel um, when I write, because all of my work is indicting the American imagination, all of my work is going to have social commentary. I was um, very excited to excited to release it, and excited for the fact that people still, you know, that that while people are doing the very necessary work of of trying to change academia and and really fighting those battles, those are those are not my battles. Um, I want to talk to 
everyday Americans. I want to talk to people for whom a lot of that academia is going to be inaccessible. Because I was thinking, you know, those, the the parallels, and maybe that's maybe the, the wrong, wrong way to frame it, of like a Lovecraft country, um, you know, the retelling of like the Tulsa massacres. But what I find, you know, in terms of that parallel, right? So everything, you know, your book, as well as those um, representations, those, you know, entertainment, um, visual representations are based in historical fiction. But I think where there's like this um, bifurcation is your approach to telling the story. Because, mm-hmm. again, like, so my initial reaction, like, I couldn't watch all Lovecraft Country, right? It was, it was beautifully told, but... Again, for me, it was the trauma, right? The trauma came mm-hmm. first. I, I did not. I did not watch past correct. the first episode of Lovecraft Country. And there was a, you know, it's not the same thing, but I think um, Colton Whitehead's book was adapted to um, a film. Underground Railroad. Okay, Underground Railroad. So I watched that for. I couldn't like after mm-hmm. the first forty mm-hmm. minutes, I had to stop, right? Because mm-hmm. I, you know, for me, it's like trauma drama, right? Right. Yeah. So I wanted to just again kind of pull from that a little bit. And your choice in telling this story, right? I don't know if it's mm-hmm. because it's initially YA, but again, you tell the story with the history, but not leading with trauma. Yes. I think you lead with love, family, mm-hmm. and freedom, right? Yes. Liberation through joy. And I wanted to 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 dive into a little bit about your your process in making that choice, or even if it was a conscious choice. Oh, it was absolutely a conscious choice. Um, that is the most little women aspect of my particular story is the love. The reason it's revolutionary is because it's a quartet of Black sisters. And so while most things, and and this is not a criticism of Colson Whitehead or or anybody else's work, um, unless, you know, it's something like them where it's very obviously where very obviously like you're just traumatizing Black Americans because you're showing something that was never horrific to the general population. It was only horrific to us. And so if you lead with that, you're not doing something, uh, you're not doing something of consequence. And you're also not doing something that's controversial. You're just attacking the same person that the state always attacks, which is black Americans. Um, But there are ways that, that people have dealt with things that are a lot more that I say it's important that it exists, but I, I don't need to consume it. And that's the way that I felt about Underground Railroad um, thus far and a couple of other projects um, is that I appreciate the need for this because there's been such an overrepresentation of false of falsities. There's been such an overrepresentation of horribly simplistic um, or, or, you know, white savior stories around enslavement. I, I'm not one of the people who says, OK, we need to be done with enslavement stories, number one, because we have seen in this country, as soon as we stop telling the truth or talking about something, white America will pretend it never happened. It's the it's the only way that you can get people who were literally alive during that time and certainly participated in sundown towns to be in 2020 like, are sundown towns real? You know it's real. 
you were there. Like, what are you talking about? So understanding how American mythology works, we cannot afford to be like, well, we don't want to talk about this anymore. What we do need to do is recenter who is talking about it and how it's spoken about. If I tell a story that is set in Black community versus a Black person who is surrounded constantly by white characters, if I show them instead entrenched in their community, in their family, the story changes completely. Because now that is something that has happened or is happening, but it's not everything that's happening. It's not the, you know, um, Black Americans were never single-minded. They were never, they were never as owned as whiteness needs to believe they were. So they have interior lives, they have interior passions, they have ambitions, they have... Um, and, and once you, A, take the shame of enslavement and put it on the enslaver, which is as simple as literally using the correct language and not calling someone a slave, um, as, soon as, you, as soon as you do that and as soon as you center Blackness, center multiple Black people, not a Black character, you know, and then a bunch of white people, a, a Black cast, a Black community, a Black family, then we can focus on what was important to them. Then we can focus on how they interacted toward each other in a place of rest, in a place of, of safety, um, then you get intimacy, right? So I think one of the problems is that a lot of stories, even when they involve Black people, are still being told to white people. And so it's focusing on what do white people think the story is here? What are the stories that white people are accustomed to in this context? Um, and I think that that is really, really dangerous because it is presence without representation. Um, and, and I think there's a very intentional, there's an intentionality, of course, to wanting that because then you can trick people into thinking you're getting, you're getting full and complete representation here. And therefore what is said in this is truly who you are and is truly the extent of your experience at the time. Um, and, and that's, again, that, that sort of gaslighting and constant like just deception and lying that Black Americans have had to have had to exist with um, is is really detrimental. It's really destructive. Um, and if it weren't, you know, it wouldn't keep being done intentionally. So it, for me, it was very important to center the story in a place of safety, because from a place of safety, you have hope, you have love, you have intimacy, you have ambition, you have passion, you have personal convictions, you have divergence of ideas and opinions, you have the ability for, for each sister to be distinctly individual. If they are surrounded by white people, they just become a group of black girls who are enslaved or formerly enslaved. When they are in their own setting, in their own space, in their own community, now they are four individual black women, black girls with very different personalities and very different ways of thinking. And we can actually give them room to breathe on the page. Oh, oh man. I'm thinking like, when is your lecture? <laughs> <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. Okay. It's amazing. Because again, I mean, it, I mean, you answered some of the questions I intended to, to ask, you know, about this power of story. And also, you know, initially when I created what is black, it was really about, you know, being a pediatrician, being a creator, thinking about public health, right? How can I use this, a platform to elevate um, and uplift, you know, Black children? Mm -hmm. And I think you answered it, right? So, but if you have anything more to add, like, how do you think, again, stories, right? Especially stories written by and for us, right? For children. And I know this has a broader audience, right? But hopefully, you know, when a Black child reads this or any child reads this, right? They see 
they see something different. Well, they see something that challenges, and this is the most important thing I think we can do, is recognize the onslaught of uh, messaging, uh, particularly anti-Black and misogynoirist messaging that people are indoctrinated with before they even know that that's what's happening. Anytime you disrupt that um, is a good thing. Anytime you give someone a particularly verifiably true information um, that can cause some skepticism and can, and at the very least can make you realize these things you're taught are not scripture. And, and the, the institution that's teaching them to you should not be just taken for granted that they're telling you the truth or that they don't have a reason for what they're telling you. So um, that is extremely important to me. But I'm my my work is for everyone, but it will always be to black girls. Um, so so my my main concern is edifying, not educating. Um, the education is going to happen just because everybody's been so woefully undereducated or falsely educated. That's just going to happen on its own. As soon as you tell the truth, like you're educating, but you're not, it's not, and I don't have to like dedicate time and energy to that because my audience in young adult is always black girls. I am always edification first. I am always, here's just a beautiful image of you because that is important enough all on its own, you know, who here are aspects of who you actually are, actually can be, um, that you might not be seeing other places. I see you. And, um, and if you are not like any of these girls, the multiplicity and the, and the, you know, the differences between them, I hope indicate that there is room for your particular identity, personality as well. Um, and that while I'm doing the work of filling a space um, that has been that has been, you know, completely bereft of of actual representation, I'm not trying to become the only one. And I want to dispel this mythology of there being one. Um, black girls deserve a feast like anyone else. So it's it's very important to me that people understand. Anyone can read my work and should read my work just the same way that a lot of stuff has never been for Black Americans that I, that has not stopped us from being able to and having to read it, ingest it, interrogate it, understand it, analyze it, be graded on it. Um, we have had to have cultural competence. Um, and so I really always encourage people, become literate because you're not right now. Um, become culturally competent because you're not right now. And Black Americans are streets ahead because we've had to be. So um, it shouldn't have to be for and about white people and white children and non-Black people, non-Black children, for them to, to bring to it the same respect and interest and intrigue that we bring to so many other people's work. And I think to me, that's also the significance of having like these four beautiful, beautiful yes. brown girls on the cover. And on the back, right? So, yeah, <laughs> which, is, which is everything, which is everything. Oh, all right. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, and before we wrap up, is there so for audience to learn more about you? Um, where can they where can they find you? Social media, websites, all this stuff. You can always find me on Twitter. Unfortunately, I have no self control. Um, it is at BC Morrow, both on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I do have a website. 
I don't know how useful it is, honestly, but it is bethanycmorrow.com. Um, I do have an author page on Facebook, but that pretty much uh, cross links from Instagram. So, um, but it is always Bethany C. Morrow. So if you're, if you're looking for my website or you're looking for my Facebook, it's Bethany C. Morrow. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Bethany. I've learned a lot and I've been, I've been, I've been edified today. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Thanks for listening. Music and editing for this episode by Manny Simone. We want to grow our community. So please tell a friend about the podcast and let them know that they can subscribe to the podcast wherever they listen to podcasts. Check out our website at whatisblack.co to learn about our work and to sign up for our newsletters to stay up to date about our exciting projects like our upcoming documentary, Reading in Black, Celebrating Black Children's Literature. Until next time, wishing you peace, wellness, and joy, and a reminder that you're seen and mattered.